Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out, that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. So the men arose and went. And Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. This is God's word. Amen. Well, we're in uh, Joshua 18 and 19. And I learned this week, uh, strangely, that the, uh, was it the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, may have read this, ordered up a new Bible, new translation uh, of the Bible, and it's intended to be, as they say, more accurate, more accessible, and more poetic. And so to do this, they go through and they kind of change some words, and, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, I just felt it kind of funny some of the words they decide to drop out or add. And so they decided, as one of their changes, to take out the word booty, which I really didn't know was in there. Uh, it must be in the King James. But they replaced it with uh, spoils of war in order to clarify for our culture, I guess, what it might have meant. Um, imagine reading it, and then they took the booty. Like, whoa, wait a second. So I thought it timely because uh, what we're talking about or what we've been talking about over the last five chapters is the spoils of war. There's been a large war. It's taken about seven years, give or take. And the land of Canaan has been conquered. And so for the last uh, five chapters, uh, beginning with chapter 13, we've been reading about Joshua distributing the spoils of war to the... uh, well, really four of the 12 tribes of Israel that are representing the 12 sons of Jacob. Two and a half of the tribes uh, received an allotment on the eastern side of the Jordan. Uh, If you show that map up uh, that's on there, and that was the original that actually even before the war, but reaffirmed after the war. And then uh, about a tribe and a half on the west side, which is basically Manasseh and Judah, has been allotted. And so chapters 18 and 19 then are 
is describing the land that's going to be portioned out to the seven remaining tribes. I say seven because you're like, wait, that doesn't add up. The tribe of Levi, you'll see uh, next week, I believe, is when we focus on it, is distributed throughout all the tribes. They have individual cities within all the tribes. And then Joseph was represented, as Jim talked about last week, by his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. So we now have seven remaining tribes on the west side of the Jordan. And the northern boundary has pretty much been established. The eastern boundary on the other side of the Jordan has been established. And the southern boundary of all the land has been established. And now we're just talking about filling in the in-between lands um, in Israel. So verse 1 begins where it says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. Now, it begins basically, this, seven, this distribu- distribution to the seven tribes, with the setting up of a worship center, for lack of a better term. And it's at Shiloh, which is a city just north of Jericho, the first city that they conquered, and south of Shechem. Shechem is the city where they went and they had the big kind of worship service between the two mountains and they did blessings and cursings and whatnot. So Shiloh is is pretty much in the center of the land, pretty close. Now, up until this point, the base of operations for all that Joshua has done, they've come and gone out of a city called Gilgal. Gilgal was the city just east of Jericho, that they arrived and set up this 12-stone monument after they crossed over the Jordan River. So that's been the base of operations. They've always gone back to there, and now they're shifting it into Shiloh. And this is the first time, it seems, uh, at least in, in Joshua, that they mention the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. And you have to be careful. There was a tent of meeting earlier in the Exodus. It was a tent that was outside the camp where God would come and meet Moses and actually, Joseph, uh, sorry, Joshua was often with him and speak to him. But eventually, as you get to the end of Exodus, God makes a semi-more permanent uh, tent, if you will, called the tabernacle. And that's what they're talking about. So this is the first time it's been set up and mentioned in Joshua. And it signals a little bit of a shift in the land and for the people of Israel where they're seemingly putting down some roots. And it becomes to see the, the final capstone on the fulfillment As the land is all finally distributed, God comes to dwell with his people in the land. Now, the tabernacle, again, if you read uh, the end of Exodus, in particular, like last, gosh, ten chapters or so, and then as you go into Deuteronomy and and the the travels through the wilderness, it was a, a portable church that basically... God's presence dwelt at. It was his home. Now, God's presence was everywhere, but he localized his presence in a very specific way, in a particular place, and was this tabernacle as they went through the wilderness. And so, whenever they'd stop, they'd set it up, and there would be, um, it was made of wood, had a lot of different parts to it, but uh, the building itself was in the center of a courtyard, and the courtyard had different uh, things in it that you can read about in Exodus. Uh, and there was a, in the center of it was the actual tent, which had a couple different rooms. And in the uh, room that was most sacred was called the Holy of Holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant resided. Now, uh, if we put that picture up, there's a picture, I think, of it. It's an obvious artistic rendition because there's no photos at that time. So they, um, it looks something similar to this. This isn't perfectly accurate, but the tribes were organized, according to tribe, around it and in the center of uh, where they camped was this tabernacle. And so they, they set it up. So at the end of Exodus, though, they, uh, you have multiple chapters 
dealt, dealing with this tabernacle of the design. God gives the designs and they build it. And so at the very end of Exodus, the last few verses of Exodus, we see that the Exodus was um, a freedom from slavery, a picture of, of really redemption of his people. And the, the conclusion of the redemption is God coming to dwell with his people in a very um, manifested way, a way you could actually see. And if you read the last verses, which I'll read to you in Exodus 40, here's what they say, beginning in thir- verse 34. Uh, then the clouds covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And this is the first time that the tabernacle had been set up within the promised land. And whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel through all of their journey. So God used this as a place not only to worship, but a place to direct them and speak to them and how they should go. Well, the last time that we can specifically tell, it could have happened, but the, the, the tent of meeting was actually set up, was back in Deuteronomy 31, and that's when Joshua was brought in with Moses, and God said, commission him as the next leader. And so he commissions him as the next leader, and shortly thereafter, a couple chapters later, Moses sings a song, and, and basically he ends up dying. God takes him, and Joshua becomes the next successor. And the tent of meeting, you know, implied, it is broken down, and they begin to go into the promised land, led by the Ark of the Covenant, as we saw in the beginning of Joshua. And the presence of God uh, isn't localized at this time, it doesn't seem, but without doubt it is with them as they go into battle. God is very uh, clearly speaking to them. He's showing up in big hailstones sometimes. He's there, their presence is there. When they do something wrong, he lets them know, and there's a constant communication going on. But in setting up This place now, at Shiloh, where the presence of God is going to to be in in a very special way, not an only way, but a very special way, is signaling a shift for them. And the shift, without doubt, isn't to say, you're all done. We did it, it's over. Although it is to say that a little bit, promise kept. But it's also to say, your mission isn't complete yet, and that's where we see chapter 18 and 19. And as I just begin thinking about the setting up of this, okay, here's where we worship now. This is where the presence of God's going to be now. We have somewhat of an established identity now. A flag's been put up. I started thinking about how this plays out for us individually and as a church. And individually, when Jesus saves someone and they become a Christian, they believe that Jesus died on the cross in their place for their sins, They believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Their eyes are opened up. The truth is received. Their heart of stone is ripped out. Jesus puts a heart of flesh in there. And you believe the Holy Spirit, as promised by Jesus, comes and dwells, much like that picture, in the heart of the individual. And your body, if you will, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a tavern. He is dwelling with you in a very powerful and special way. But that is happening not so that you will just sit there and do nothing but go, I'm so glad I've got the Spirit of God in me. Although that's beautiful and wonderful and good, it is to empower you to do something. It is empowered to move you, to direct you and guide you with confidence, with strength, with, with joy, all these things. Then corporately, 
I think we see this played out as we're going to see it played out in, in 18 and 19. It means that a bunch of people that are saved by Jesus, a bunch of people that have the Holy Spirit dwelling with them, gather together in the presence of God. And I say in the presence of God because I firmly believe that this is a sacred assembly. This is a place where the presence of God dwells in a special way. And it's not that Damascus Road Church, it's that any church, Bible-believing, gospel-centered, you are my Lord Jesus church, that has the presence of God in a special way that's different than two or three guys on the golf course going, well, wherever two or three are gathered in their name, God is here. Four? You know, that's not, it's different. It's supposed to be different, and it's a good and beautiful different thing. However, even though it's special, it doesn't mean our work is done, and it seems like, honestly, a lot of churches, uh, including ourselves at times, and maybe just Christians, churches, get that confused. And a gathered community and a completed building is not a completed mission. Okay? So just because we, and it's very tempting because there was a time in the church plant where it was 10 people staring at each other. Okay? And suddenly you have an 11th person or a 20th person, whatever, you have more than 10 people, and you're like, all right, we did it. Very tempting to go there, like, we did it. Well, since you're not dead, there's no did yet, right? You, you continue to do whatever it is, but there's confusion as to what happens sometimes, I should say, not confusion, there's idolatry where the church becomes the mission. Okay? Now, the church is beautiful, the church is good, the church was what Jesus came to build. But he came in his first coming to build the church as he promised in Matthew 16. But it was for us to continue to do his work as the church until his second coming. So there's no completion until Jesus returns, whether we are alive or not at that time. So there is, without doubt, joy in contentment. In being content, there's joy in, in having a, 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 you know, a group of, of 10 or 11 or 100 people that all love Jesus. There's joy in worship. But there is, without doubt, a danger in the comfort of community. There's a danger where you're like, okay, we have something, now let's just worry about us. And I think as Joshua See, he sees the comfort in a, in a bad way of his people. He sees, uh, as Israel is assembling together to erect this tabernacle, to celebrate this, this place of worship now, they have this, this kind of flag down identity, Shiloh, man, we are worshiping here and, and God has done it. He senses a feeling that they are becoming missionally lazy and that they are becoming maybe comfortable in the community that they have created or they've been gathered into so joshua not only sees that they're not actually doing anything although it looks like they're doing something they're not going to go do anything else but there's so much more to do and so joshua in verse two or three verse three speaks some very hard words it's if you really think about the situation going on it's kind of odd but here's what joshua says There remained, in verse 2, there remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not been apportioned yet. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off? And he's, he's actively, this is like, this has been happening for a time now. How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Not is it going to give. 
How long will you put off going and taking what God has for you? Now, the text makes a point in the first verse to say that the land is subdued. The land is defeated. The land is, there's no hostility, if you will. It's, there's nothing in their way to prevent them from possessing what God has given them. And all that God had promised them, all the places He said you will dwell in, is there for the taking. But for whatever reason, if you take from Joshua's perspective, they are refusing to move And in the middle of distributing this land, they stop. They stop. And Joshua, a man of faith, a man who has been a phenomenal leader, a man who has been someone of action, is now somewhat perturbed by what he sees in terms of their effort and their attitude. And he's not just, you got to remember, he's not just disappointed like, gosh, I really wish they would go do this. He is discouraged, I believe, flat out because they have not just disappointed him. They are disobeying God. God had told them to do this. God had promised certain things. And it's a wonder that a lot of commentators skip this third verse. They don't talk about it. It's like, oh, it's a distribution of the land. And they just like, not all, but a lot of them ignore what Joshua is saying. And I think, or I wonder if it's because it feels weird for Joshua to read him charging them being lazy and unfaithful because aren't they waiting for Joshua to like tell them where to go? That seems odd. Like you're blaming them for not doing anything, but you haven't told them where to go necessarily. Time has somewhat passed in comparison or two or from the time the first inheritance came out. So this is how I'm trying to understand why he would say this. If you remember the first inheritances that were allotted, okay, the first ones were on the Transjordan side of the river. You just think about, okay, what were their attitudes like? Well, they came up, they defeated uh, a couple kings, and Gad and, um, put that map up, it was uh, Gad and Manasseh and uh, Reuben, okay? So they, they look and they go, hmm, this land looks pretty good. Right? And although we look at them and kind of go, well, that's kind of hasty. You guys are like, you know, taking something. At the same time, they're excited about having a portion. They, they want something. They want their land. They want to dwell. They want to put roots in. They want to live in it. God's promised it. And it's the first thing we see. Let's take it. You fault them a little bit for being hasty, but you have to appreciate that they're excited about it. Then they go across the river. They do the battle. Okay? And then... The first allocation is to Judah, but right before Judah, the guy represented Judah, Caleb. Caleb comes up and says, all right, where's my inheritance? You promised it. God promised it. Give me my inheritance. I want that hill country over there with the big giants. It looks terrible, but I'm 85, feeling vigorous. Let's go. He's excited, right? He He wants to take it. And then the other inheritance that comes after Judah was what Jim talked about last week was Manasseh and Ephraim. And when Manasseh receives the allotment, you have these daughters coming up. And what are they concerned with? They want their own inheritance. They want it. They're excited about it. Give it to us. We are owed it. All these things, they're excited. They want it. They want to move on it. And even though we see later that there's a complaint given by the same tribes about like, you know, 
you give it, we need more land, we need this, whatever. And Joshua's like, you know, you got plenty, take it, go defeat, go clear the forest, all these things. They're still excited about getting it. They're at least worried about a portion, even if they're worried sinfully so, they're, they want it. So there's an eagerness, an attitude about living and dwelling and following God and doing it that's different than what these seven tribes have done. Or at least seems like it's different. Because they don't seem, according to Joshua's kind of charge to them, very concerned, very eager, very excited for their individual portions. Now, Joshua sees this, that they're not actually going to possess what God has said they're supposed to possess. So you have this land hanging, you know, with low-hanging fruit there, ready to just be taken, and they are not excited enough to go just take it. For whatever reasons, they're satisfied with what they have right now, though God had said there's more. Catch that? Oh, I'm, I'm content, but it's not a good contentment, which is weird to think about. Well, I'm just content. You almost look at them like, you know what? They maybe just really satisfy what they have. That's not what Joshua says. He actually says they're actually unfaithful. Don't mistake it as contentment. They're being unfaithful and not taking what God says is yours. Live in it. Now, we have to ask yourself, why won't they move? Like, why, why won't they actually follow God in this way? Why won't they obey? Why won't they take what's clearly a gift and live in it that's intended for their joy, intended for, for their goodness, intended to bless them and the rest of the world? Why won't they take it? Why won't they move? And I just asked myself, maybe God asked me, like, why won't you? Really? Why won't you follow? What's the excuse you use that we use to follow? It's like, I came up with a couple that might work for them. Perhaps they're tired. Think about this. They've been battling for seven years, going through the wilderness for 39 plus, then battling for seven years. Maybe they're just exhausted in following God. They're tired of doing God's work. I'm sure there's no one like that. Right? I heard about those kind of Christians in other churches somewhere. Not here, though. What kind of person is that? It's the kind of person that says, well, I put my time in. I've done my work. I had my, you know, church experience where I was really faithful. I remember that. I remember those times. Remember back then when I served? And you kind of put that on a mantle, and that's where it stays collecting dust. I'm kind of tired. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm exhausted. Then you read the Caleb's 85, and you're like, I don't know if that really works anymore. Okay? But... They're tired. They don't want to move. It could be that not only tired, maybe they're just bored. And what I, I mean by that, maybe they just really lost interest in doing God's work because it's not exciting anymore. I mean, oh, man, I remember when doing God's work was, remember, guys, when we're out in the battlefield, you know, and we're fighting all the Canaanites and those hailstones are coming down and, like, God's doing amazing things. And I remember the early church plant stage, right? We're all excited because we didn't know, we still don't know what we're doing, but we didn't know what we're doing. And then people are showing up and all kinds of weird stuff and good stuff's happening. We're like, yeah, it's exciting. That ends. There's a romantic period to that. And they go, well, maybe we're just bored. 
Before we had like the next conquest to look forward to, the next battle. Now, like, you know, sitting and, and dwelling in the land and building homes, and that just seems not very exciting anymore. I mean, just living as, you know, a God-honoring Israelite? Can't it be a warrior? It's not as exciting. Or I think maybe they're just comfortable. And maybe they're um, just happy with having a nomadic existence of just moving from place to place. And you go, well, how does that bring um, any kind of joy? Well, ask anyone that goes from church to church to church. It's not that it brings joy, but it certainly avoids commitment. It's much easier to date a bunch of people than it is to get married. And what I mean is marriage is difficult. Dating's easy. Don't like you. See you later. Marriage's like, uh, we're together. Okay. Things have got to change. We both have to be refined and sanctified. I mean, there's a lot of people that in Israel, like, they're comfortable. They're like part of something, but they're not really a part of something. If they didn't have their own individual portion, then there would be no extra effort and no required stewardship for that portion. It was a very good way to avoid having to take responsibility for something. I can just remain comfortable. Some will suggest, which I thought about this week, that maybe they're just waiting on God. Like, they've just been waiting, as I said, and um, it's tempting to think that. Like, they were just being really faithful. Okay, God, tell us our next portion. But if you look at Joshua's reaction, that can't be the case. And the truth is, they're waiting on God. God, who is actually waiting on them to do what he already told them to do. So the whole waiting on God thing doesn't really work. Like, like us, I think, though, they probably use the excuse that just oh, God hasn't shown them their exact portion yet. The Spirit hasn't led me to what I'm supposed to do. I'm praying about it. And I've been praying about it. And praying. he still hasn't shown me. I know that he calls me to love my neighbors, but he doesn't read my real neighbor. I mean, I don't even know his name, and I lived there next, you know, for 10 years now. But someday the Lord will move me in such a way to go over and knock on his door and just say hi. I hope. But if he doesn't, that's okay, because it's the Spirit leading. I mean, just twist it. Like waiting for the Lord to lead on something he's already told us to do. And the, the sad thing is that person, whoever they are, does absolutely nothing but yet can still look spiritual. Like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you loving here? Why, why? Well, I'm praying about it. You're like, oh, well, in that case, you know, go and do likewise. I mean, it's very convenient. This is not biblical. God is, remember, God has already said, this is yours. Take it. It's a gift. Live in it. Possess it. Honor me through it. We pray about whether we should do that. It makes no sense. And so, I don't believe that they are supposed to necessarily run ahead of God and like hope God catches up and shows them. But you even look, like, it's, they're not even expecting it. They're not excited about it. They're not looking forward. They're not pleading to God like, come on, God, where's my portion? Let's go. Joshua sees that and says, you guys are comfortable, bored, something. You're not going to go anywhere. If I say nothing, you will remain here forever. And it, I think of, of Christians. Oh, this, is, this will be something that's interesting. 
God has said to Christians, those who love Jesus, those who have been saved by Jesus, there are good works to do. Okay? Now, I know when I say that, a lot of people are like, oh, works. Oh, hold on. He has said that there are good works for us to do. There are works there. He says in Hebrews 10, not only to not neglect the gathering, but to stir one another on towards good works. It's a lot of good works that we are commanded and called to do. And yet, how often do we like, I need to pray about whether I'm going to do good works at all. Because I don't want to get into a place where I'm trying to get my approval. You're already approved if you're in Jesus. Why do we have to go back to that conversation? It is not out of need for approval. It's because you already have it. It's in response, not to obtain. There are good works for us to do in Christ. And just as it is clear as Israel that there is a portion for you to go live in, there is a portion for you of work to do, to glorify God that only you necessarily can do. You can pray that a missionary is sent to reach your neighbor next door, or you could walk next door and just say, hey, would you like to come over for dinner? No one's saying lay out the 12 spiritual laws for him, like let me tell you all the things that has to happen for you to become a... Just love them. Those kinds of works. I'm blown away sometimes by like um, things like there are people in our church that are struggling with cancer right now that are, that are, that are suffering and people have to pray about whether or not they're going to take a meal to that person. Whether or not they're going to pray. Gosh, I hope someone helps them. At what point is it your portion to do? How long? I think that's a question for all of us. How long? Or at my version, how stinking long? But he stands for us. How long before you actually do what God has already commanded and promised you can do, has empowered you to do? How long? I know I beat on you husbands a lot, but I'm going to. How long before you actually take your marriage seriously? How long? You hear about it almost every week. How long, wise, before you begin to respect your husband until you feel like he doesn't deserve it? How long, men who are single, are you going to actually live like a biblical man? How long, women? How long, parents, are you going to take serious responsibility for your kid? How long? How long will it be before you actually talk to your neighbor? How long will it be before you love Jesus and love his bride? How long? will it be before you actually say the glory of God is more important than my comfort? Where it's actually the most important thing. How long? Those are tough, tough questions. And I sat on that verse with Joshua all week because don't think for a second that just because I get the privilege of speaking God's word up here, I do so from someone who has it all figured out. I have the same how long questions being challenged to me. So the challenge, though, for Joshua here is like he sits and he sees these people who are lazy and not really moving, and you're like, okay, there's joy to be experienced. There's blessing to be experienced. Um, how do you move people who don't want to move? How do you encourage them to act and to possess and to live in what God has already given them? How do, you, how do you charge men and women to take 
what God has given them as a gift and start stewarding that gift to His glory and, and your joy? How do you do that? And for me, as, as honestly pastor of this church, my greatest fear, and this is why we're pushing church planting and why we push people out, is because I have a fear of how do you get people on mission when they're so comfortable living in community? And I'm not saying the community is glorious and sacred and beautiful and wonderful and necessary, and I would even say primary. But how do you get people to actually live beyond that? So, we'll see what Joshua does. Verse 4. I think he gives us a good understanding. For, for those people who get to a place like, I want to. Okay, I'll move. What do I do? Here's what he does. Verse 4, he says, I know I'm in verse 4, and I said we're going through two chapters, so don't freak out. We're not going to be here for two hours, okay? It all works itself out. This is the meat of it, though. I know right now, but oh my gosh, and I'm sitting on a metal chair. All right, provide. <laughs> verse 4, he says, provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land, and they shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me, and they shall divide it into seven portions. So, first thing that Joshua does is say, go survey the land. Go look at it. Go check it out. Go evaluate so that you will know how to move. You will know where to obey. You will know what has been given in your care. And there are a few things we learn through this, as simple as they might be, is that they are not only called to survey, to look, to open your eyes and just look, to just actually see what am I responsible for. He tells them to write it down. I like writing things down. I think God likes writing things down. Most of us struggle with writing things down. Why? Because once it's written down, you're suddenly accountable to it. It's kind of permanent. So we avoid, oftentimes, writing it down. But not only do they write it down, what they write down and how they write it down, I think it's important. He takes, I think it's noteworthy that he doesn't just send one guy. Okay? He doesn't just send one guy to check it out. He sends three from each tribe. So these little communities... The survey of the land, I think, most accurately takes place in community. What does that mean? Well, if I'm a husband and I go survey my marriage and I don't ask my bride how things are, what's that survey going to be like? I'm getting an A+, I guarantee you that. Because when you survey something that you have shared responsibility for or the people that are in that zone are... It's best that that actually takes place in community. My bride has an incredible amount of wisdom and insight, especially into me and into our marriage and into our family. It requires community because we are definitely apt to get blind to our own blindness. That's why people don't get roommates. Right? You get a roommate and they suddenly come to live with you and they're like, you are a stinking slob. What are we talking about? I smell great. It's like, dude, picking up a piece of clothing that stinks, spraying cologne on it and putting it in the dryer to make it warm doesn't mean it's clean. It's like, what are you talking about? 
That's normal. No, that's not normal. That's very abnormal. But you would never know that. If anyone's gone from being a bachelor to being married, you know real quick the disgusting things that you do, right? Or the irritating things you do because the women have just as many as the men do. You require community to get to actual the truth. You ever asked your children about parenting? I'm not telling them, tell me how I should parent you, son. I'm not talking about that. But have you ever evaluated how you're doing with them? I think it's the value of having good brothers and sisters who are gospel-centered and care more about you glorifying God than they do not say anything about your little idol over there. You need that. You require that. I need that. I need to be shaped and challenged as I survey. And someone goes, dude, you're, you're off. There is wisdom in many counselors, and sometimes that wisdom is painful. But there is wisdom, as the book of Proverbs says. And then once they had written it down, once they discussed it in their community, they brought it before the Lord. They brought it before the Lord. And I think we're very tempted to like, make our little pro-con list and you know, map out the strategic way to have a vision for our family and then never actually submit that to God's word and to pray for his counsel in pursuing that. So they describe it, and then they bring it before the Lord, and then it's assigned to whoever is responsible for that. And it says, they came to Joshua at the camp at Shiloh. Joshua cast lots for them, indicating it's God's will here, in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. This is a spirit-led strategy. It's a spirit-led strategy. It's organized, divinely organized, I should say. We're not dependent upon the wisdom of men, but we use it in submission to the counsel of God. So we see in, in chapter 19 how it all breaks down. So I'll go through it really quickly, how the, how the tribes are allotted. Put that map up there, and you'll see what they're describing. So we don't feel like we're skipping everything, but I'm going to just summarize it all. They start going through. And they start with Benjamin in the middle. And in verse 18, I'm sorry, chapter 18, verse 11, and all the way really through the rest of the chapter, largely. And I don't know why it's so detailed for Benjamin. I've tried to find some smart guy's answer to that, but it's just super detailed. I'm sure they can come up with something. But in verse 11, it says, The lot of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans, came up, and the territory allotted to it fell between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph. So you see it right there. Chapter 19, verse 1, it says, The second lot came out for Simeon. For the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans and their inheritance, was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. So this is the one tribe that's actually, you see Simeon inside of Judah. Uh, that's often related to uh, Jacob's blessing back in Genesis 48. But it's a little bit of a unique uh, allotment, but it was the second one that came up. The third allotment in verse 10 of chapter 19 came up for the people of Zebulun, according to all according to their clans. The fourth lot, verse 17, and this is just describing them, came out for Issachar, for the people of Issachar, to their clans. Verse 24, the fifth lot came out for the tribe of people of Asher, according to their clans, and it describes it. And my guess is chapter 19 is probably the description those guys came up with. And then a sixth lot came out for the people of Naphtali, for the people of Naphtali, according to their clans. And then the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans. And so you see it all lay out and all the divisions are made. And so once the land is described, the tribes can no longer claim ignorance. 
Like, if I tell you what a godly husband is, you can't simply, well, I don't know what a godly husband is. I don't know how I'm supposed to love my bride. You may stink at it, but you can't claim you don't know. So, I wonder how many times that some of us have avoided actually writing stuff down. I mean, seriously, actually writing it down in order to avoid taking responsibility for it. Isn't it James that says, you know, for he who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. So I just won't know. Don't know what a godly marriage is. Don't know how I'm supposed to act it at my job in terms of being a believer. Don't know what I'm supposed to do with my neighbor. I think there's something about neighbors. I'm not sure. I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to study it. Then the once the land's assigned, though, the tribes even have less excuse not to settle and live. To move and actually live and grow and cultivate and protect all those things we talked about when we first talked about portions. To live in the place that God has assigned, not just exist. There's a difference between living and breathing. Called to live in this portion. Here's your portion given by God. And it's both an individual and a, and a corporate thing. Here's what I mean. The first time a land was ever described, before really these last few chapters, it was always described as, here are the boundaries of all of Israel. Because it had meaning to be identified with Israel and the land. If you are in Israel, part of Israel, an Israelite, an Israelite lived a certain way. You, you were a certain kind of person. You lived differently than the rest of the world if you were Israelite. And it was, you had at the center of your worship, God, and God gave laws. And with those laws, he said, here are the, here are the family rules. Now, he also gave us part of that, a sacrificial system. Why? Because they really stunk at following the rules. So he made a provision for them to be forgiven, pointing towards Christ, knowing that they could never meet the standard. But there were rules that were written down for them to know that they lived as being a part of Israel. There were certain things, if you look at Deuteronomy 6, that they did with their children. They taught their children. Every time they made a monument, tell your children this when they ask, implying that they did ask. Teach your children about God. Teach this is the way that God's people live. That's what it meant to be part of, regardless of what tribe you were, when you were in Israel, that's what you did. And that's the same thing that God gives us as a transformed life in Christ. You are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. What's that mean? It means that those who love Jesus live life differently. There should be someone who loves Jesus as a husband differently. Those who love Jesus are fathered differently. Those who love Jesus are work for employers differently. They do their finances differently, according and aligned with God's way. That's just what it means to be a Christian. You live differently. There's an expectation, an assumption, that with a transformed life, it's not like, I'm going to try to do this. This is going to happen. With the Holy Spirit dwelled in you, you are transformed. And it doesn't mean we succeed perfectly, what it means is that we have and are protected by the perfect sacrifice of Christ when we don't. We are constantly empowered, constantly forgiven, constantly driven to glorify Him in living like Jesus as individuals, as husbands, as fathers, as wives, as moms, as men, as women. But then, 
not only were they Israel, but they were also Israelite, and they had a, had a particular portion that they were responsible for. And so you're not only, if you believe in Jesus, if Jesus has saved you, you are not only a Christian, but you are also the church. You are the body of Christ, and you are, more than that, a part of that body, or supposed to be. You can't just sit back and go, hey, you know, I'm glad to be a part of this thing. And when I say this thing, I'm not not talking about Damascus Road, but that is the local expression of it for maybe you here. There's a portion within this big land that as a part of the body, you are called to fulfill and no one else can necessarily. How do I know that? The Bible teaches it and I read it. 1 Corinthians 12 says this, For the body, the big body, does not consist of one member but many. I agree. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. But the foot isn't a hand. Right? But they're still all part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. But it's not an eye. If it's an ear, it's not an ear. It's still part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God, like lots, arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it were, there are many parts in one body. Now, the flat out truth is, there is much more work to do. And God has sent and built his church to do that work. And being a part of the body isn't optional. It is by nature who you are. And being a part of the body means that you're on mission, but you could still have Joshua going, oh, by the way, you're supposed to be on mission. You're supposed to be stewarding that portion that is yours, whatever it happens to be. And so I'm not like Joshua and I go, well, I've got a list of names and tasks, and we're going to match up everyone that should be doing something. That's not what I'm talking about. But God has brought us together as the family of God in this place, and He has called you as a part of that something, of that body. And the question is, how long is it going to be till you actually fulfill that part? How long will you sit and let your portion just lay when God has said, this is what I promised you, this is what I've commanded you, this is what will bring me glory and will bring you joy. Nah, I don't know. I'm feeling really comfortable, bored, and tired. Be careful because Israel was disobeying. They were disobeying, and that's what Joshua was most worried about. Let's close it out at verse 49. The passage ends with speaking about the inheritance to Joshua himself. And it says, when they had finished, in verse 49, distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath, Sirah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. So the end of the book takes us full circle full circle 
kind of reminds us or echoes back to Numbers 13 and 14, and that's where the spies first went to the land, and only two spies were faithful, Caleb and Joshua. And once you know, when they begin to distribute the land, the first guy to get an allotment is faithful Caleb. And the last guy to get an allotment is faithful Joshua. So you have these bookends of faithfulness. And the city that Joshua gets is Joshua's personal possession that God never promised to him. He may have promised it sometime, but it's not recorded. Caleb was told, because you have been faithful, you're going to get the hill country that you went and spied out. And 40 years later, 40, 50 years later, he does. Joshua was never promised squat diddly. But he became the leader, and he led, and he did all these things without guarantee. And one man, think about one man's faithfulness. One man's faithfulness, we see here, ends up for a blessing, a joyful blessing. The city he gets isn't listed anywhere else as part of the allotment. It's a personal inheritance for him. Caleb's city that he gets is listed like three other places. It's a Levitical city, I believe it's a city of refuge. But not Joshua's. That's his. And so his faithfulness resulted in blessing and joy for his family and himself. But more than that, his faithfulness resulted in blessing for all of Israel. And his faithfulness resulted in blessing for really the whole world as Christ comes through Judah. Now, the question we all have to ask is, why would Joshua do this without guarantee? That's a very American question. Very much like, what's in it for me? So we could ask, well, maybe he really loved, um, you know, leadership. Like, I like, I'm just wired to be a leader. I like the regard that comes with leadership. I like people listening to me. Maybe, maybe that was some of his motivation. Maybe his motivation uh, where he just enjoys battling. Like, I enjoy the thrill of war or battling and fall. It's just awesome. Maybe, and this one maybe sounds a little more like, yeah, this is probably why. Maybe it's because he just really loved his people. Maybe. But I think his primary motivation for faithfulness to his portion that he was given, the part of body that he was, was about a love for God himself. He loved God. He followed God not because he was going to get something, but simply because he loved him. And the first Joshua, Yeshua, points us to the second, who is Jesus. And think about this. This is the spirit that we have received if you are a Christian. In the spirit of Jesus, Jesus himself, redemption and his sacrifice didn't benefit him. Yes, it preserved the holiness of God, yes, but ultimately we don't see some great grand benefit for himself. Why did he do it? Because he loved us? Not primarily. He did it because he loved God. Never forget that Jesus' motivation for redemption is a love for God, not a love for us. Primarily, we're the beneficiaries, and it's glorious. Because of the faithfulness of one man, 
I'm saved. Because of the love of God he had, I am saved. And his love for God manifests itself out in an amazing, immeasurable, incredible love that says, you are more sinful than you could possibly imagine, but more loved than you would ever, ever, ever imagine. Now, when I ask the question, how long will it be before you act on the command and promises of God? Any question like that, I know you get to a place where you're like, works, works, works. Any question that says, how long will it be before you act on the command and promises of God is really a question of how long will it be before you orient your life toward glorifying God and loving Him above all else? That is actually the question. That's the question Joshua is asking to Israel, and it's the question I ask myself, and the question I ask you, how long will it be before you truly glorify God in everything, apart from what it will get you, apart from your comfort, but simply because God has commanded it, and you love because of how much He's loved you? We'll close, and the band's going to come up, and we'll take communion. And you need to understand that when we take communion, we take it every Sunday, and we don't take it as an extra, like that's the little thing we do at the end. This is actually the purpose why we gather. To participate actively in the sacrifice of Christ. But know as you come to the table, be very careful. I'm not going to do that, oh, you know, let the Holy Spirit search your heart. Yes, that should happen. But let me just remind you what's happening as you come in here. You are making a confession of something. You are confessing an identity, I should say, a recognition of your sin, an identity with the crucifixion of Jesus. So if you're not a believer, don't come to the table. You are confessing that your life is sinful and that Jesus Christ took your place on the cross and that your old life died with Him and was your sin past, present, and future, was buried with Him. But that's only half of the confession. You also confess that there was a resurrection and a new life given. And that new life means you move so that God doesn't come and say, how long before you get moving? And if you feel like God is asking that question, then confess it. It's sin. And live the life that God has planned for you that I guarantee is for your blessing and for your joy. Given as a gift from God. Not to obtain His approval, but because you have it in Christ. Period.